Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I want to begin this morning, and we're going to look at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 14. But I really want to begin with a little bit of an anatomy lesson and what the person is in the Bible as we understand it. The fundamental components of a person's being, when you look into, especially starting in the Old Testament, a lot of people talk about, theologians talk about a a trichotomy view of man. It involves three main things, the body, the soul, and the spirit. There's one more component to what it means to be a man or a woman, and that is the component of the heart. And that's where I want to dig in a little bit more this morning. By far the most anthropological, the most important anthropological term in your Bible to describe man is the heart. That word occurs 853 times in the Old Testament alone. But the problem is that there's no English equivalent to really understand for ourselves what the Hebrew and what the Greek terms mean. Uh, Ancients contributed the body's functions to the heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, when it talks about the death of Nabal, the fool, it says his heart died and he became like stone. Uh, Proverbs verse 15, chapter 15, verse 13 says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Uh, biblically speaking, the heart is what controls the body. When you go to somebody who looks a certain way, their countenance is fallen, perhaps it's, it's, there's a heart thing that's going on there with that person. There's no other part of the body as involved in the sensibility, intellect, and the will as much as the human heart. Emotions are often described as being experienced in the heart. Again, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. In Proverbs 14, verse 10, the heart knows its own bitterness. In our world, we tend to isolate thinking our secular understanding, we isolate the intellectual capacity really to the mind as we understand human beings. Biblically, thinking takes place in the heart. Proverbs 24 verse 2 says, the heart devises violence. It thinks, it contemplates, it plans violence. Uh, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Another verse in Proverbs. As the eyes are meant to see, and the ears are meant to hear, the heart is meant to understand and discern truth, to discern practical knowledge. It's the heart that will prompt us to action. It's the heart that leads us to make the decisions that we make. It's a filter for our actions, our emotions, and even our motivations. Spiritual sensitivity, the Bible says, is is captured in the heart. The great uh, Hebrew Shema from the Old Testament is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus picks that up. Almost every gospel will quote that verse verbatim from, the, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so collectively, when you put all these things together, what we end up with is a, a theology of the heart. It tells us that the heart is the essential core of who you are. The heart is to the human what the flux capacitor is to Doc Brown's DeLorean. It's to a a truck like a farmer is the heart to the human, a rifle to a hunter, 
Uh, it is to the human what the motherboard is to your computer. Everything ultimately goes through the avenue of your heart. Your heart is the real you. Your heart is who you are when nobody's looking. Your heart is how you think. It's how you act. It's how you express yourself. And here's where it gets really troubling with the heart in, in terms of uh, biblical understanding. Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand the heart? It's these verses that caused John Calvin, the great reformer, to say that the, the human heart is an idol factory. Less left to ourselves and because of sin, we mass produce idols, things that we worship over and above God. It's this theology of the heart that led Augustine to say our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. We are always loving certain things out of their order, pursuing, desiring, wanting things more than we want God, and that's a heart problem. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to continue in our sermon series through Colossians, and, and we've said about this book that, that Paul's intention in writing this is to tell us more and more about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is enough for us. That as the book opens up, we have identity truth, who we are in Christ, and now in the latter half of the book, we've got identity transformation, how do we now live in Christ? And here's what I want to say today as, as we're looking at these passages, these verses in Colossians 3, is that if lasting change is going to come into our lives, if we are going to be Christians who are transformed by the Word of God on a daily basis, that change must go through the avenue of our heart. Otherwise, it is simply cosmetic fixes on the outside only. Over and over again, what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to say, transformation needs to go through your heart in order for it to last, in order for you to be truly, truly changed. So number one in our outline, number one this morning, the target for the heart. Why don't you look down at these first four verses, Colossians chapter 3. ESV here says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and really when you see that phrase hidden, your life is hidden with Christ, uh, that's the one time in the New Testament that you're going to see that phrase it has to do with, with this idea of protection or safety and security. And we are sheltered by the wings of the Almighty as Christians. It's a, it's a really interesting phrase. I'm not going to be able to explore it too much today, but um, really good thing to think about in Colossians 3. For you have died, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, this entire paragraph is centered on two commands. Verse 1 is the first command, seek the things that are above. Verse 2 is the second command that it's like it. It's basically just fleshing out or expanding what that means to set your mind on the things that are above. But I want you to notice something because Paul is not just throwing out these random commands like a military officer, a commander, a general, a coach, a teacher, without context. Instead, what the Apostle Paul does is he makes a sandwich. 
right? So before those two commands and after those two commands, he tells us more about our identity, who we are in Christ. And here's the first thing that he tells us about who we are. The first thing he says in Colossians, we have been raised with Christ. That's a perfect past tense verb. We have been raised the second that we trusted Christ, we have been raised, and we are currently raised with Christ. And, and listen, some people read that verse and they say, this totally contradicts the theology of Paul. Because for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection and being raised with Christ, that's something that happens in the future, right? There's going to be a future literal bodily resurrection of all of us before the consummation of all things. And so listen, let's not overrealize an eschatology here. Let's not get so focused on the future that we lose sight of the present. Some people just want to do away with this idea altogether, but I don't think that's the case for the Apostle Paul in these verses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul prays that we might know the power of the resurrection of Christ as believers. Romans 6 says that we have died with Christ and we are now raised to a newness of life. The resurrection affects us not only in the future, not only in the past because of Christ's resurrection, but also in the present tense. We have been raised with Christ. And here's what that means. We have been raised with Christ spiritually. Just as Christ's body literally was raised from the grave, so too believers, the second they trust Christ, are spiritually raised. Who are we as believers? We are people who have been raised with Christ because of the truth of the gospel. The second thing he says about our identity is at the end of those two commands, verse 3, it says, you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ. As believers, when we trust Christ, the second we do, we, we die to our sin. That doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin. That doesn't mean that you no longer have sin indwelling, the presence of sin isn't there. Here's what it means. It simply means you have died to the penalty of your sin. The condemnation of death no longer holds master over you. You have died to the slavery of sin. The power of sin no longer controls you the way that it did apart from Christ. And the reason I know, listen, the reason I know that these identity markers are so important for the Apostle Paul is because of how he opens in the first place in verse 1. Because verse 1, your, your text, look down, it's, it should say something like this. It's a conditional statement. There's an if clause in there. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Some of your translations, I think the NIV and maybe the New Living Translation are the ones that get this right. That's not a condition to say if and it might be true for believers. It's a condition that says if and it is true. You should read that when you come to Colossians 3 verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ. Now our responsibility is, listen, here, here's what we're supposed to do. Seek the things that are above. Set our minds, contemplate, consider the things above where Christ is seated. I love the King James Version. Set your affections on the things above. Set your loves, your desires, your wants, your longings on the things above. You guys uh, drive in Oklahoma here. I noticed this more in Broken Arrow than anywhere else. Um, Y'all hit potholes out here? 
from time to time. Who's in charge of the roads out there? They just need to, they need to do something. I mean, I know Tulsa's about the same, and we got our spots too, but um, you ever like hit a, a big pothole or you get in a little fender bender? One time, I'll tell you this quick story. I was with these girls in high school, went to a movie. It was a little rainy outside, and a good song came on the radio, and my dad's Chevy Lumina had like a really big engine. Did I tell you the story before? And I just decided to go really fast around this turn. I thought I was all slick, and it was like a little wet and spun out. And the front right tire just smack dab hit the curb right there. And I went from being this really cool guy that drives a Chevy Lumina to this really poor guy that needed a ride home with these girls from the movie. You ever hit a, hit a pothole or get in a fender bender? And usually when you drive your car, you're, you're like, uh, 10 and 2 o'clock, right? But in order to keep that car straight, you're more like over here a little bit. Really, what that means is that you have an, an alignment issue. And the first thing you guys are going to do is you're going to go to the mechanic and you're going to ask them, hey, can you put me on the machine that will realign my steering, realign my whole system? Here's what, here's what these commands mean. Set your mind on Sink the th seek the things above. When God originally created man, he created us with a certain alignment. It was a perfect alignment. He created us to love him more than we love anything else, to seek him, to desire him, to long for him, to worship him more than anything. And just three chapters into the biblical narrative, we come to Genesis chapter 3, and, and something terrible happens. Right? The serpent comes along, and he convinces the man and the woman. And he says, the things that you really want, the things that you really desire, aren't found in God. In fact, he's holding certain things from you. But if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, it's desired to make one wise. If you would pursue this longing, this desire then you will know good and evil for yourself, right? And so what happens is they look for, they long for, they want, they have a desire that God did not align them to have. And ever since Genesis 3, Christians have been steering to the side. Believers, unbelievers, we have longings, we have desires that aren't aligned to the way that God originally created man. And so we pursue all of these other things. Now, instead of desiring God, we desire sin. We desire things that are going to make us happy more than the Creator. We desire created things. Listen, this is exactly what Paul's saying. He says, set your mind on the things above. And that's a favorite verb for the Apostle Paul. He uses, it's 26 times in the New Testament, 23 times it comes from the Apostle Paul. Think about these things. Consider these things, ponder these things. And it's not just an intellectual exercise of the cerebral cortex that he's talking about. When the Apostle Paul says to think, to set your mind on these things, to seek these things, essentially he's telling us to put our loves in order, to put our desires in order. When Paul says, seek the things above, he says, sin has so infected you and has such a, a hold on who you were apart from Christ, that you are going to want certain things more than you want me. You're going to actually worship things more than you worship me. 
And so Paul is encouraging us to take that misaligned heart and over and over again bring it back to 10 and 2, to go back and get yourself realigned, to take this human heart that we have that is now soft to the things of God because we are believers and make sure that our loves are aligned in the right order and in the right place. You ever heard the phrase, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good? The reality is, is really that those who think the most of the world to come are the most effective in the here and the now. I love how C.S. Lewis put it to describe these verses. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Paul wants us to set our minds on the things above. You ever, do you, do you struggle at all in your life with the same sin over and over again? Do you have, a, do you have just one nagging thing in your heart, in your life, that you just can't seem to break it? Every time you come up with another method or another tactic for fighting that sin, eventually it still rears its ugly, ugly head and comes back into your life? Here's why. Change that ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. In order for God to radically transform your life, he must radically transform your heart. And a lot of that is the process of realignment that just happens over and over and over again until we get to the place where we can delight in the Lord and he gives us the desires of our heart. Number one, the Apostle Paul is saying this, the heart is the target. Aim for the heart in your transformation. Number two, we talked about this a little bit, is just the trouble of the heart. Um, let me ask you this. Do, uh, do certain things bother you on a regular basis? Robert, you got any of those things in your life? You're an accountant, man. I know you're like hitting all the numbers and balancing the sheets and stuff like that. Um, any of you guys been through a Starbucks drive through lately? Please do me a favor. Just, I want you to mark this down in your notes really quick. Do me and the whole world a favor for the love of Pete. Just download the Starbucks app on your smartphone. You can actually make your order before you pull up in the line, and it helps everything go so much faster, right? Like, do certain things just like kind of... Here's, here's a novel idea. Do you, ever, you guys ever see these things? Uh, they're called like, I don't know, shelves, cabinets, and closets. How about, how about this one thing? Just like, if you take something out of the cabinet or out of the shelf or you pull something out of there, like, just put it back when you're done. Like, that's all I'm asking you to do. It's just, wherever you found it, uh, Henry, then can, just put it back <laughs> when you're done, all right? If you, if you slept in your bed, hey, I don't know, maybe just make it in the morning. It might... I'm just, I'm revealing all of my, okay, here we go. Um, it's hard to realize this, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw this one out there. What, what the Apostle Paul tells us will affect your relationships, your politics, your friendships, and your growth as a Christian. Our greatest battles in life, the things that really bother us. I'm just being silly with cleaning the house and Starbucks lines. The things that, the things that make us angry on a normal basis. Our greatest battles, our greatest issues in life 
are not outside of us. The greatest conflicts that you will ever face are not with other people, and they're actually not with situations. The greatest conflicts that you will ever face in life are within you. People and situations don't force you to be angry. Uh, one guy sitting in the Starbucks line just listening to a podcast, he doesn't care if nobody made their order on the, on the smart app. Somebody sitting in traffic that's going on and on forever just, just listening to sermons. This is great. This is peaceful. It's my downtime before I get home. Our greatest battles, our greatest issues are not outside of us. Our greatest struggles in life are inside of us. And so look down at verse 5 in chapter 3. Here's what it says. Put to death, therefore, what is outside of you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, inside of you. And all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul sounds a lot like Jesus. You'll see this in Matthew, you'll see it in Mark, and you'll see it in Luke. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man. Jesus is not saying your problems are outside of you. Jesus is not, Paul's not saying your problems are outside of you. Both of them are saying the problem is inside. It's that desperately wicked human heart that we fight with on a daily basis. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder. The beauty of this passage is in the structure. I want to point out a, a couple of things. Paul lists five certain things, specific things, to put off in Colossians. Um, there's a sixth thing as well there, and, and we'll talk about that as we, as we go through. The five things that Paul lists here, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. You know, your text might say greed there, which is idolatry. And on account of those things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But then one of Paul's favorite phrases in verse 8 always comes back to, but now for the believer. Uh, you probably notice when looking at this list of, of five, six things here, probably notice that the three are overtly sexual in nature. In fact, you could even take it a step further than that, evil desire in the context, knowing that those first three are related to sexual sin. Evil desire probably has to do with an, an over-evil desire of a sexual nature for a person, for a believer. Covetousness is, is this idea of, of just wanting more greed. It's an inappropriate desire for more, maybe even in a sexual context. And the trouble of all this is a summary statement, verse 6, or the sixth thing in the list, the trouble with all of it is it's idolatry. All of it is summarized by being idolatry, worshiping something or someone else other than God. In this specific instance, it's, it's worshiping a desire for sexual gratification. It's worshiping the self. What is idolatry? I love uh, Martin Luther's definition. In his larger catechism, he says this, a god is the term for which to, this is loaded with prepositions, he's got way too many in here, a god is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge 
in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, Luther says, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and idol. And so then he summarizes it with this one little statement. He says, anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that really is your God. Summary description of idolatry. This is what it means to be an idolater, to looking to something or someone else besides God. List one, five things. The sixth thing is a qualifier that, you know, like a summary statement puts it all together. List number two, now turn to uh, look at the next few verses here, verse eight, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Here in this list, you also have five things, just like the first list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Sixth, it's kind of this summary statement, the summary description. All of those sins are, are things that we do with our mouths. They're speaking sins. If the first list of sins predominantly refers to sexual sins, the second list of sins predominantly refers to sinning with our words. And if that's the case, Paul isn't emphasizing the emotions of anger, malice, uh, wrath. He's emphasizing the outcome, the things that we speak to express those emotions. And here's his point. Believers should avoid unnecessarily critical and abusive speech. Here's what I... Here's what I absolutely loved about Diana Norwood. Diana Norwood never heard her say anything critical, abusive. Um, always, whatever she said, she was always encouraging and she was always lifting people up with her joyful countenance and her smile. And we look at this, we look at this list of sins. We have people like Diana who are just a gift to us in our lives. And we say, oh, that's not that big of a deal, controlling our mouth. And yet we turn right around and just spew out things that take people down to the ground in a heartbeat without even thinking about it. If you think you're doing pretty good in the Christian life, just monitor the things that you say. Are you a complaining person? Are you an angry person? Are you expressing things that aren't fit for building people up and loving them in the body of Christ? Two lists of sins. First, sexual sins. Second, sinning with our words. Five items in the first list, five items in the second list, with a sixth modifier in the first list, a sixth modifier, qualifier in the second list. And then verse 9, we get to this phrase. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. What is Paul talking about? What was the command for us to do in verse 5? Put to death. What was the command for us to do in verse 8? Down in your text should say something like, put them all away. Now, all of a sudden, verse 9 says, seeing that you have put off the old self. So what is it? Do we put off the old self, or is that something we did in the past and we no longer do in the present? And the answer is yes. It's both. The second that we became believers in Jesus Christ, 
we put off the old self. We forsake our previous way of living our life, and we turn now to a new way and a new direction. All of us have sought to go our own way. Each one of us has turned to our own way. But when we come to Christ, the redemption, the newness in Christ gives us a new way, a new truth, a new avenue for living our life. And so, yes, we have put off these things in the past. This is an aorist participle. The second you trusted Christ, you have been clothed with Christ the second that you trust him. But the trouble of your heart is that indwelling presence of sin is still there, and it's going to be there until you're with the Lord in glory. You have been freed. You have died from the penalty of sin. You have been freed from the power of sin, but the presence of sin is still there. And until that day, our responsibility is to continue to appropriate the things that happened when we first trusted Christ. It's to continue to put off the old man and walk in the newness of life. Um, John Owen has a, a really good book, one of the great Puritan writers. He put it this way, be busy about killing sin or sin will be busy about killing you. In Christ, sin has been defeated. Sin is still there in our earthly lives, and we still have to be vigilant, accountable. We have to do the things controlled by the Holy Spirit to walk with God in a way that pleases Him. We've got the target of the heart, aim above, all right? We've got the trouble of the heart, which is idolatry. Number three in your outline is the transformation of the heart. I'm going to finish up reading through verse 14 here. Look down at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Listen, all you have to do as a Christian is develop some compassion, kindness, meekness, and patience for other people. That's it. That's all you got to do. Super simple, right? Verse 13. I'm being facetious up here. This is, this is a difficult call for a Christian. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. How has the Lord forgiven you? Completely, totally. He has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's the same way you forgive other people. You make a decision to forgive people before they ever offend you in the first place. And then you walk that out on a daily basis. Verse 14, above all of these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So after Paul's first list of what to put off, verse 5, second list of what to put away, verses 8 through 9, now he tells us what to put on. And your text will either say something like this, verse 12, Put on then or therefore. And all of this goes back in the context. This whole passage is about what it means to walk in the newness of Christ, of having a new self in Christ. Your lifestyle, your choices, your decisions are now different than they were before you trusted Christ, right? And we are living in the context of community as Christians, a local church community, a bigger universal church community. And this community transcends the boundaries of religious affiliations, backgrounds, ethnicities, and social status, right? If you go back up just to verse 11, in Christ there is no Greek or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. All the racism conflicts that are out in our world today are easily solved with believers living their life in Christ as believers. There is no more ethnicity background that divides us. 
There is no more social status that divides us. We don't have to talk about low income, middle income, high income. We are all the same in Christ. Whereas the first two lists forsake community in order to build the self, the third list forsakes the self in order to build real Christian community. Nowhere else in Scripture will you read these first descriptions that we are chosen, holy, and beloved in a triad form, just one right after the other, like we have right there in Colossians. This is a key, key verse. And again, the Apostle Paul keeps coming back to who we are in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. We are holy in Christ. We are beloved because of Christ and the gospel. What brings Paul's third list together is that they are attributed or associated with Christ. All of these descriptions point us to the person of Christ. We think about Romans 13, verse 14, and it talks about put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on this one who was humble, gentle, patient, meek. All of these things that we have listed. I'm not at all surprised, not at all, that this list, the first, very first description is to put on compassionate hearts. The Greek word for compassion literally refers to the inner parts of our guts. You ever have a gut feeling about something? You, have, you ever have something that's kind of like, man, you just feel like this is the right thing to do? Or something just feels a little bit off? That's the same Greek word for compassion. The ancient world, just like our world, a lot of times emotions were attributed to specific body parts. It's the same way that we, a lot of times you think with your gut. The Apostle Paul is saying to put on this compassionate heart that from the innermost parts of your being, the vital organs, you are compassionate, caring, thinking about other people and caring for them in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. The second virtue is kindness. And typically in the Bible, kindness is directly associated with God's goodness. It's always accompanied. Kindness is always accompanied by acts of kindness. It's not just a mentality. It's not just a thought. Kindness is a word that has legs on it. It's a moving action word. So if we are kind, it will display itself in the things that we do in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says, Believers are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches and his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Third thing we are to put on as believers. The third thing is humility. I love how Matthew Henry's got a, a book on meekness and quietness of spirit. He's one of the great Puritan writers. And this whole book is about what it means to, to walk in humility, to treasure a meek and a kind and a quiet spirit. He says this in this book. He says, The conquest of an unruly passion is more honorable than that of an unruly people, for it requires more true courage. He says, it is easier to kill an enemy without, which may be done at a blow, than to chain up and govern the enemy within. That requires constant, even steady hand and a long and regular management. Matthew Henry goes on to say that meekness is a victory over ourselves and the rebellious lusts in our own hearts. Meekness, humility, is a victory over ourselves and the rebellious lusts of our own hearts. The fourth thing, the Apostle Paul mentions, is gentleness. Community-fostering virtue of gentleness for other people. 
A lexicon defines this word gentle as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. To be a gentle person is to have the quality of not being overly impressed by your sense of your own self-importance. Jesus is the best example of somebody who is gentle and humble of heart. Matthew 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon, upon you. It is light, it is easy, for I am humble and I am gentle of heart. The last virtue that he talks about in community is, is patience. Right? And when we develop the, this idea of patience, it's not so much that other people or even uh, us ourselves are waiting for God to work. A lot of times the key to patience is God waiting to work for us. It's not us that needs to be patient. Uh, it's not us, excuse me, it's not us that needs to look for that patience. It's, it's God that's waiting for us, that's developing patience within our hearts to mold us and form us to be more like him. There's a sixth qualifier in verse 14. Above all of these things, right? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So as you're putting on humility, patience, meekness, compassionate hearts, all these things, the robe, the cloak that goes over all of it, the outer garment that goes over all of it is love. That's the thing that's going to build perfect harmony in the body of Christ. Love is seeking the best for another, no matter what it costs you. Love is always costly. Love is always sacrificial. Love is always selfless for the believer. And love is always Christ-centered. How in the world are we going to be a church family that is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, and loving with one another? That's a, that is a high and a daunting task, Right? Here's how you carry it out. The Apostle Paul told you everything you need to know to develop those five characteristics and six characteristics in this community. The way that you do that is by looking at the participles. Look down at your text. How do we put on kindness, compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, patience? By doing this, number 13. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to bear with other people. You're going to put up with other people. One of the best things that you can do in the body of Christ is realize that sometimes things aren't going to go your way. Sometimes certain things, certain people are really going to, they're just going to bother you. And the Apostle Paul tells you exactly what to do in that situation. Bear it out. Because <laughs> guess what? Tomorrow, somebody's going to have to put up with you, right? And here's the, here's the second thing that you're going to do. The second thing that you're going to do is you're going to be readily able to, willing, and walking in the forgiveness of other people. When they wrong you, when they treat you, when they offend you, disrespectfully do these things, what does the Apostle Paul call you to protect these aspects of community virtues? So you've got to forgive them. Just make a decision now to forgive other people before it ever happens. Christian community is virtuous. It points to Christ. It looks like Christ. When we bear with one another and when we forgive one another on a regular and on a consistent basis. And that doesn't mean you just go off and do whatever you want to do to other people and mistreat them and act the way you want to. See, you need to forgive me. We're in Christ. 
It just means that those times when you're prone to think about yourself or how you are offended or how you are mistreated, instead, think about Christ. Think about how he was offended. Think about how he was mistreated. And think about how he forgave those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about your personal sins and how they were forgiven, every single one of them, past, present, and future. Putting up with other people all of a sudden takes on a a whole other dimension. Right, Mark? Forgiveness and bearing with one another being carried out in the body of Christ does away with church splits, rumors, gossip, division, relational issues, you name it, simply because you've made the choice to forgive that other person Christian community. We're taking a lot of things off. We're taking 10 things off plus two summary descriptions. We're putting five things on, and we're doing it with forgiveness and bearing with one another, and then we're putting on love over all of it. Number, number one as we apply this text. Our hearts are always being ruled by someone or something. We've talked a little bit about this. I've taken a lot of this from Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. I want to encourage you to read that book. Um, The subtitle is Hurting People, Ministering to Other Hurting People. He's got two chapters in there about the heart that are excellent. I've gone over and read them at least 20 times in my own uh, personal, personal life. Number one, our hearts are always being ruled by someone or something. I want you to um, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Just look, we're going to look at just a couple more verses here. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, and then skip down. I want you to look at verse 24. Of course, this is the famous Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. He seems to just tackle so many issues and talk about life in the kingdom, uh, kingdom ethic even now and a righteousness that's beyond that of uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Matthew 6, verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And, And listen, Jesus could have put anything there besides money, anything, any created thing he could have put there. All right, but he's emphasizing money at this point in the sermon just for that specific reason. Our hearts are always being ruled for, by someone or something. And here's what that means. There's no neutral territory with your heart. At any given moment in time, you are totally and wholly worshiping and fixed on Christ or someone or something else. There's no neutral territory. You're either in one camp or you're in the other camp. And even for believers, when we still struggle with sin, a lot of times we can step off and start worshiping someone or something else other than Christ. And here's what Jesus says. Don't, you can't do that. It's not possible to worship both at the same time. Let's get back up to verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves break in and steal. For where you, and verse 21, here's what I want to say. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. The things you set your heart on other than Christ, any created thing that you set your heart on, will ultimately control you. You cannot control the things you set your heart on. They will control you. They will capture you, they will control you, and they will enslave you. And the desires of your heart will be taken off into other things that God never intended. It's time for the realignment. Bring it back to center. Number two, whatever controls your heart will exercise an inescapable influence on your attitude and on your behaviors. Whatever controls your heart will exercise an inescapable influence on your actions and on your behaviors. If God isn't controlling your heart, someone or something else is. Bruce Springsteen, everyone's got a hungry heart. Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. The operative question at any given moment for you in your Christian life is this. At any given moment, what has the fundamental allegiance and pull on your heart? And again, anytime it's something other than God, we got to get realigned. Are you concerned overly about money? Money has control of your heart. Now you are worshiping money instead of worshiping God. Are you concerned about power? Power's got control of your heart. Now you start worshiping power and control more than you're worshiping God. And so you confess those things and you shatter those idols at the foot of the cross and you come back to Jesus over and over again. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It just means this is the process of the Christian life in dealing with things in our hearts. Number three, God changes us not by simply teaching us to do different things, but by radically realigning our hearts. God changes us not just by teaching us to do specific things, but by radically changing our heart. And so here's the truth of the gospel. You and I both come into this world dead to the things of God. Our hearts are hearts of stone. They reject the things of God. They reject the truth of God. They reject the truth of the gospel. Our hearts convince us that we have the power, the knowledge, the authority, and the ability to live our life in the way that we want to live it with success and that we will be fulfilled on our own. But in the gospel, Ezekiel talks about this. It says that God gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. He literally gives us a heart transplant at a spiritual level. And now, all of a sudden, this heart that we had that was so prone to wander and to pursue other things and to be centered on ourselves, all of a sudden now, because of the power of Christ and this transformation and this new heart that he has given us, our hearts are soft to the things of God. We can respond to the things of God. We can set our mind on the things above. We can seek the things of God rather than seeking our own happiness, our own will, our own wants, our own desires. And so I want to I leave you with a verse in, in Psalm verse 37. It says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So many of us are captivated thinking that some worldly desire is going to fulfill us, 
and we don't even know the desire that we're truly, really looking for beneath and underneath all those other wants and desires. The Bible says if we delight ourselves in the Lord, in Him, in Him alone, He will actually give us the desires of the heart. He will put those desires in order. He will put our loves in order. As we continue to, to take off our old way of living and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's just there's so much that we can say about the heart. There's so much that we can say about the Holy Spirit working in us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, I, I thank you that um, you died for us, uh, that we are raised with Christ, that we are seated with you in the heavenly places even now today that we have everlasting life. I thank you for this identity. We don't have to look to other things, other people, worldly created things for a sense of... Um, self, self-satisfaction, gratification, pleasure in this world, that you have given us everything that we need for godliness in yourself and in Jesus. I thank you that you are enough for us in our Christian life. Lord, I pray for, um, pray for help. We pray for wisdom. We pray for power to overcome these desires that get us out of alignment from the desires that will ultimately experience fulfillment in you. When we see those things in our, in our lives and in our hearts, Lord, help us to confess them back to you. Lord, help us to repent of those things. God, and find our ultimate joy, our ultimate desires in you and in you alone. God, we ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.